That's how it starts. The fever, the rage, the feeling of powerlessness that turns good men cruel. Welcome, I am Andrew Dice. And I am Stephen Colbert. And this is Batman v Superman by the Minute, a podcast rewatching Batman v Superman one minute at a time. This is hilarious that we we have to do this every episode because at this point, if you don't know that, uh, that would be weird. Or, but maybe there are some people who are just jumping into the recent episode, even though that seems crazy to me. Yeah, no, we've got those people who are like, I know this movie like the back of my hand. I just want to see what they say about Minute 63. 63. Minute 63. Well, uh, we are going to have a lot to say. So maybe um, on behalf of myself, I'll say in advance, maybe don't judge the entire podcast by this coming minute because this is going to be a hardcore nerd session. <laughs> it's the culmination of 40 years curating, and I can't believe it, but I finally got it here. It's the sword of Alexander. It's the blade that cut the Gordian knot. It's a triumph. Yes. Enjoy. Thank you. You had made a comment in a previous episode where you were like, I know you're going to have a lot to say about this coming minute. <laughs> I, I think I've seen enough casual tweets from you about this where you where it's just something along the lines of every once in a while I think of that tracking shot at the in the museum or something like that. It's like, okay, so we're coming out here and I know that, that you've got thoughts. Well, we just heard that um, John Stewart clip that I was so critical of. Yes, right. The the owner of the Shine Shoes and Hardee's, I think, uh, being rushed. And now we see that it is the serving staff of an event is, we, we kind of talked before about this reading like a kind of Frank Miller, like a Dark Knight Returns aside. That is driven home by uh, like a beautiful tracking shot, as you mentioned. That I mean, I would love this in any movie. Uh, a shot that goes from the kitchen with the like quote unquote, you know, like staff, the people that are just working the event, and then following them out into this glitzy party where you, you're kind of invited to ask what matters, what doesn't, like what is appearance here, and, and what is the truth of it. That's a perfect backdrop to introduce the, I guess, final player of our trinity of heroes in this film. Although, like we kind of said before, we wouldn't really know uh, at the moment. Like, it is feasible that somebody would not really know who this character is yet, especially, like, in the future if someone comes to this movie casually. Yeah. Although we're introduced to... You have enlightened me about who this figure actually is. Yeah, it was funny because I almost didn't look into it because I was like, oh, Dice always figures out who these side, who these random characters are. I thought I recognized him from from something else because he's he's just kind of got one of those like bit character faces. But it's actually the character is James Harmon, but the actor is Graham W. J. Beale, who was the former director, president, and CEO of the Detroit Institute of Arts. So they they filmed the movie in heavily in Detroit, and so yeah. clearly they were just like, oh, here's a. We had a couple other of those cameos <laughs> earlier where we were, we were talking about how Zach's cameos are a little bit different than than other people, and we know he, you know, he had a he went to school for for art uh, for a while, and so it's obviously this movie's f full of it, which we'll get into in the next minute <laughs> a little more. We need to get someone to speak intelligently about antiquities. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's just a really cool kind of nod. Um, although ironically, this is not set at the Detroit Institute of Art. It, it, the building they are using is the Detroit Public Library. Again, we'll 
I've got a long story that has nothing to do with Batman v Superman. Um, I'll tell about that in the next minute. <laughs> he snags he like the handoff of the tracking shot is him when he snags a glass of champagne from the tray, barely even registering who is carrying it. Who who is the character that we've been introduced, which is really nice, subtle. We're kind of getting pulled along. I always feel like I'm being led by the hand in these kind of shots. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's so it, the you feel like you're very much a part of the crowd. Like you're following this guy out and the camera's doing a lot of spinning. So you're looking around. I was looking around to see if I could see um, uh, Calvin Mul- Callan Mulvey. Callan Mulvey. Yeah. I was scanning the crowd and be like, oh, I bet he's in here somewhere creeping on them because that's what he's doing. This whole movie is just hiding out in crowds, creeping on people. Yeah, if you look really closely at the marble statue in the background and you can just see the eyes moving. <laughs> right. Or like you see them walk by and someone lowers one of those party masks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've got uh, like a few moments in this scene, I guess. The scene is kind of split in two for me. We can talk about the first half here, which is I'm going to like nerd out big time, obviously, because I, I like minored in, in classical studies. So ancient Greece and Rome when I was in university. So this was worlds colliding for me of superheroes and the ancient world. It's a very cool, obviously cool backdrop to introduce Diana. The part that I didn't even fully put together is how this, I guess we just have his name, but we don't really know what he is. Uh, But James Harmon is a curator or something of some sort, and he knows exactly who she is and what she's interested in. Um, That they have a they have a history or she has a reputation. We know from like sort of the the bookends of Wonder Woman and then a little bit more from Justice League that that's kind of her profession is a like an art curator or she restores art. Restore, or... yeah, an expert uh, that that he's not at some point I thought he was trying to I don't know, try to charm her, but it's funny because he's literally just trying to impress her. Like, <laughs> yeah. he, he gives her a spiel and then at the end of it, he just leaves. So he's obviously trying to impress her. There's a few details uh, that are worth calling out. The fact that the first words out of his mouth are, I wonder, would you? Yes, I I, I wrote that down too. I thought that was, uh, Chris Terrio has a little bit too much fun sometimes, <laughs> I think. I think I, I love him. I love his dialogue. I love this even, but I think he got away with a little bit too much. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, in his defense, I think it was like the second viewing that I ended up catching that. I also really love that she's talking to two white-haired older people when you consider the the century of the world that she has known. She would have more in common with these people than any of the other people we're going to see her interact with really in this movie. Yeah. I'm also curious is if this is a – this seems to be like a limited – this is a, a collection that is on display, right? Like it's, it is because it's in the lobby and it's, it's all themed that this is not necessarily like what is normally on display um, at the museum, but they, and that's part of why he's so excited about this specific part. Totally clueless to the fact that none of this is why she's actually in this city. Yeah. Right now at all. Uh, yeah. I think again, it was the second or third time that I, I watched her just carry that champagne glass and just put it down. Yeah, the next uh, chance she got, which, well, and remember, we've been talking about drinking, and and deception, and oh, people yeah. that are drinking are no deceiving themselves or others. Um, I was just, just talking about the no the no <laughs> bourbon earlier today. No champagne. But yeah, so I think that's a it's a very deliberate that we've been kind of noticing who drinks. Uh, you know, I'm not going to drink it. Um. And that um, she deliberately they give her a drink and she sets it down, which means she is not 
deceiving herself, but she is deceiving others. Um, so, uh, but um, yeah, just an interesting call out, considering it's one of the themes we've been tracking. We can go into, I mean, probably my favorite, well, I'll say 40 seconds of the movie, 30 <laughs> seconds of the movie, where the this curator, I assume, uh, of the museum regales Diana about how, <laughs> again, all tragic, that this is the culmination of his entire career. 40 years as a curator has led him to this wah-wah. Yeah. But um, he, he refers to... Uh, Alexander the Great as, you know, this incredible leader and king and also a psychopathic killer. I had never heard Alexander the Great described that way as a psychopathic killer. Um, it's going to make sense after the fact when we realize what he is talking about. How, I guess, how should I start here? Like, can I describe the Gordian knot, like what we're actually approaching here? The The problem I think here mainly for me is that this guy's interpretation seems, and most of the interpretations I see of the Gordian knot are, uh, I'll, I'll, like I'll say, if not wrong, at least like incomplete. And I well, think in this context, that's really important. And I looked at, I knew that you were going to have a lot to say about it, but just to keep up, um, I did a little bit of research and my understanding is that there's actually like two schools of thought or at least mm -hmm. a primary and a, well, maybe that's not exactly what it was school. And the one is that it was, Oh, I don't want to steal your thunder, I guess, but... No, no, yeah, here, this is good. A beginner or, like, a new, a novice Gordian Knot uh, student. Well, the, the Gordian Knot was a... Well, I guess to, to spare the full story, it was a knot that was not able to be untied, or the, the person that untied it was supposed to rule Asia or something. And um, Alexander couldn't untie it, and so he cut it, which, to him, he figured satisfied the requirement just as well, and he went on to rule Asia, so it counted. There are some who I believe say that maybe he didn't actually cut it, but he just used the sword to loosen the strands, which I've done myself with knots that I can't untie, but that doesn't <laughs> seem like it fits the nature of the of the legend um, thematically to me. the The whole point is that he he found a solution that skirted the rules using brute force at least that's what's interesting about it to me yeah that's basically like uh you know yeah whoever whoever shall cut the knot will end up ruling asia it's a terrific legend it, it exists completely with significance in alexander coming to it which is again two schools of thought one of the things that is uh kind of glossed over is that it's not that the knot is impossible it's that it is a knot of knots like it is it is a uh you wouldn't know where to start you wouldn't know how to do it unless you were the person that tied it in the first place so it isn't like some impossible riddle it's just a situation that is almost unsolvable not by being too hard or a trick but just you cannot solve it it's an unsolvable thing because of the very nature of how it was made right and the gordian knot as a concept is a an unsolvable problem. Basically that. Yeah, like a, where would, you know, a quagmire, a, where would, a dog's breakfast, where would you even start with this? That then has significance that people can think about in their own time about the prophecy that says the person who unties this knot will conquer all of Asia. 
Is it the person who does it will be blessed by some weird circumstance of fate like old Greek, you know, myths? Or is it the person who is capable of doing this is bound to be a great leader or whatever? Right. Yeah. Is it, is it a sword in the stone or is it a, um, a, uh, um, oh shoot. I bet there's another similar fable that's like on my mind that I can't recall now, wow. but wow. Yeah, so we'll just say, is it like Sword in the Stone or something else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a destiny thing. Uh, chicken and the egg, or ox or cart. Um, but then the other side of it is how Alexander solves it. And there's also two uh, dramatically different solutions to it, which kind of depend on who you're asking or whatever. One of them is he takes out his sword, slices it in one go, and he has, through military strength, kind of shown this part of the world how things are done, and now he's going to be someone they've never met. The problem is, that's not very smart. <laughs> you know, that's, you can look at that as being like, wow, he figured it out. Or, no, he was just an idiot who who used it by force. Well, it's also, so, and the, I'm, it's going to come to me in the middle of talking the other story that I'm thinking of, but I maybe it's not very smart, but I think it is clever. Because I think he is thinking outside of the box there, because what he's thinking of is what is the intent of like he's not slicing it because he's necessarily because he's dumb or at least the rule in my reading he's he's slicing it because he's determining that per the the letter of the requirement um he thinks that it can be satisfied by slicing the the um lord of the rings uh, and the fellowship of the ring when they get in the, into moria the speak friend and enter it's kind of like a, a a trick like that in my mind yeah there's two levels to it one of them it's funny that you say clever because that's the other side of this is the other version of the story is that he removes the other end of the rope from the cart and then working from uh -huh. both sides is able to untie it. So then you have the idea of, okay, well, which of these Al Alexanders is smarter? One of them is more a strategic, th literally thinking the problem out. And the other one is thinking to a point and then just using strength from the way that this particular curator describes the scene and putting so much incredible honor upon the sword of Alexander, which cut the Gordian knot, I assume he would think that this is just brilliant, that he would cut it um, a military mastermind. But all of this is folded up in the, in the fact that, like, historians are not really sure if Alexander was a great leader or not. He was definitely a great conqueror, but conquering is in some ways a lot easier. He, he was such an incredible conqueror and leader that after he died, the entire empire stood no chance of staying together because nobody but him could keep it together. So how you're going to look at that is an interesting thing to consider as this guy says, he informs Diana that he's going to take her to see the sword of Alexander, weapon that Alexander used to solve the unsolvable problem. If Alexander is the unstoppable force, then the Gordian knot was the immovable object. When he reveals to her one of my favorite details of the movie, the sword by which he solves the problem, Bruce Wayne is standing off screen reflecting literally over the sword, a different Alexander's solution to a different unsolvable problem. If one scene could kind of hint at the kind of layers of storytelling and myth-making and symbolism that we're dealing with in this movie, this is a particularly potent one. Yeah. Because this could have been any figure in history. This could have been any relic. Uh, it like factually doesn't matter. It's not real. 
right? So it could have been anything, but they chose to use a leader who was credited as being either smarter than everyone else or more ruthlessly direct than everybody else. Right, to solve the unsolvable problem. Exactly. And the sword that we are presented with in this guy's framing as the blunt, sharp, violent solution is literally layered with Bruce Wayne, who we know, I guess now in this viewing and in this discussion, is the sword of Alexander Luther. On the first viewing, I don't even think you would be able to appreciate that at all, because we we wouldn't know on the first viewing just how much Bruce is literally being used as a blunt or, I guess, a sharp object in this case. Well, at this point, we don't um, in the first viewing. But um, but also, like you said, it just on as we as we're unpacking this, the duality of the the intent behind that, because like the the the, the Alexander the Great and the Gordian knot and and all of that, I think on a surface level kind of clicks as like, oh, that seems like a reference to whatever. But then you break it down with the fact that there's, it's almost a meta reference because of the the fact that there is disagreement about how he did it and how it was successful knowing that adds to the sort of duality of the of the story in which it can apply to either batman or superman or um or lex bruce or lex in the way that they're approaching solving this unsolvable problem of superman when you consider that that we were introduced to lex in his home surrounded by kind of these artifacts of the ancient world he clearly would know this story and like picturing him you know, saying, what, if Alexander can't solve the knot, he'll cut it. You know, like in the most dramatic moment of the movie later on, it, it reads the exact same way. I'm smarter than, I'm greater than. It is paradoxical because the genius faced off with basically Hercules, right? Like you're comparing Alexander the Great, the great conqueror and, and you know, revolutionizer of the ancient world with a guy who's really strong. Yeah would be just outrageous to him. So, but again, Alexander couldn't fix the knot himself. He had to cut it. Yeah. And the the fact that we are explicitly making the sword a separate object, it needed a weapon. I I really really dig how even if you don't notice this, it's a cool scene, but I think this one stands out in kind of the the layers and and themes that Snyder is dealing with as calling itself out enough to get your attention. That this would be something that, like, if you saw the movie and then went home and were thinking about it, you would Google, what is the Gordian knot? Yes. Mm-hmm. What did I miss here? Um, and then on the second viewing, you'd probably get it. And then probably on the third or fourth viewing, like me, you would see Bruce Wayne literally reflected. He knew where she was going. He knew where he, which, I mean, raises his own questions anyway, but he was one step ahead of her, uh, or so he thought. We quickly learned that isn't the case. But, again, to cap off this entire thing... This was the object credited with solving the unsolvable problem. And then Bruce immediately arrives to simply say it's fake. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of the minute. <laughs> and also, um, because there's a number of questions about what I think there's, there's a number of questions about who is actually Alexander hmm. um, in the in the metaphor. I think Alexander Luther is clear, but I think there's you could you could say that um, that Bruce represents it also. But then there's the question of of who or what is the sword because there is a you know later on we get multiple different things that could very well be represented by the sword 
Um, and I also find it interesting that you get the reflection of Bruce, but as the tracking shot continues and it pulls up, Diana's dress is just like super, oh. super sparkly. And so you've Shimmering, got like, yeah. yes, you've got all these sparkles around the sword. And as the camera like lingers on it, like for a while. Yeah. And, um, it's almost unfortunate that like, it's not green. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I guess the sword itself is, you know, slightly greenish just from oxidation. Yeah, and so yeah. I don't know if they're, you know, there's obviously not a clear like kryptonite nod, but the sparkling in the dress, I don't know. It, 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 it's one of the many things that kind of comes to mind. And kryptonite is very much the, you know, in, if you were to, apply the the story of oh the, yeah cutting the gordian definitely. knot that's like kryptonite is very much cutting the gordian knot instead of yeah untying it <laughs> is the sword batman being wielded by lex luther is the sword the kryptonite spear being wielded by batman is lex luther the sword being wielded by like dark side in the larger picture if we're talking about a conqueror like yeah. from the other side of it i think anytime you inject a magical or like mythical weapon taking a step into fantasy, which when you pair it with the Excalibur stuff that we've talked about, and we'll talk about more as the movie goes on, this is almost like it's not Chekhov's sword, but it's like Chekhov's weapon. Like we want you thinking about while this is a very modern story. A weapon used to solve an unsolvable problem. Yeah. And and, in a like classical context, mythic yeah. Like we're not dealing with a we're not dealing with the historical Alexander, like the way he talks about him and the way that he talks about this weapon. Um, like there is no sort of like the the sword of Alexander is not some relic that is like, uh, you know, the Holy Grail or something like that. Yeah. Like if you went to a historian and said, like, where what happened to the sword that Alexander used to cut the Gordian knot? They would be like, are you kidding me? Like, that's not like that's where is Hercules's lion skin robe? It's yeah. Like, no, that's that's not. <laughs> He's he's literally making myth real in this fictional universe. Mm-hmm. Later on, Batman in armor wielding a spear that is, for all intents and purposes, magical is like, oh, we've actually been in this kind of story a lot longer than we thought. That merits a little bit of examination, though, into the notion of like we talked all about this, the the significance and the mythic importance of what it represents. And then per your point. It's not a thing, but even if it was this one here, it's a fake. Um, and it's literally where the minute ends after after he says it's it's a fake, and we don't know how he knows that or why until until the next minute. Um, yeah, but I think says a lot about all of the schemes that everybody has here to to cut the knot. They they aren't they aren't real. And, um, you know, we see that Nothing later is as it seems, right? All of the weapons that Luther thinks he owns, it turns out he doesn't own, you know, the real doomsday is hanging above the bed of the Sultan yeah. of Hajar. The real Diana. <laughs> I don't think any of that occurs to Bruce. That is, that is on a layer of, uh, he is probably, and I guess that's where we lead into the next minute is, I guess it kind of goes to what we've been speaking about before. The fact that like he is waiting there for her is the kind of thing we would expect from Batman slash Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Who then immediately shows he's completely misread the situation and doesn't have any of the actual facts. Yeah. Well, and you wonder like, did he pay off or not pay off, but like influence this, um, uh, James Harmon to bring her over here. Like maybe he talked him up 
And then we assumed that they had a previous relationship, but he also may have been like, oh, you know who's really going to find that fascinating? Um, or he just knew maybe the guy had been taking pe- taking his guests over there all night, and so he, he knew that that was where she, he was going to take her <laughs> the second she arrived, or I don't know. But I do find it fascinating that he's that he's waiting there for her. And, and It's pretty masterful strategy from Lex Luthor, now that we've confirmed this was all his doing. Mm-hmm. He got all of these relics here for this one show. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to go one step further. Harmon? That's Lex. No, that's KG Beast. Harmon is KG Beast. Yeah, I am this old museum curator, and he's a master of disguise. Right. And you know what I think this sword is? Oh, what? A fake. 